0: Well, not too many weeks left in First Timothy, huh? Coming to the end here. We've got a great text in front of us. Good morning, by the way. We doing okay? Yeah? Most heads are down. I'm assuming that's because you're finding your Bibles right now. Is that what's going on? You stuck them under your seat, right? So then you have to find them afterwards. Some of you look awesome, just kind of like this. This is what I'm seeing right now. So that's good. That's good to have everyone here. More importantly, it's good that you're like, oh, he's talking. I need to get my Bible out. That's a win. And we're glad that you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the sides. We're going to be in 1 Timothy, which is in the New Testament, chapter 6. We've been walking through this book of the Bible verse by verse. My name is Scott. By the way, I'm the lead pastor here at Doxa Church, and just sweet to have you with us for worship this morning. Such a huge central part of worship is the proclamation of the Word of God, and all God's people said, amen, amen. And so we come to it again. And... um, well, I've got a provocative title for you today. I think everyone's going to want some of this. Um, the title of the message is How to Be Rich. And so if you're like freaking out, you're like, man, I haven't been coming to Docs for very long, but I heard this was a Bible preaching church. And now they get a little heady because it's growing. And now they're a, they're a prosperity gospel church. If I hear something about sowing a seed today or a second offering for a jet, like we're gonna have problems and my kids are just starting to get into kids' men, like what's going on? Don't do this to me, Holling said. Don't do it. Listen, hang on, hang on. You haven't even heard the message yet, okay? You gotta hear the message first. The title's just supposed to draw you in and you're all drawn in because let's face it, who didn't wanna be rich? Come on, come on. Own the fact that you know you want to be rich. But here's the hint about the whole pursuit. It's not about money, 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 money. Money. It's not about that. It's not about that. And if you actually read that song by the OJs, they'll tell you why, okay? Money is a dead end towards becoming rich. Listen, if you think money makes you rich, you will love money. And behind that door of desire, you're going to find ruin, not riches. And the reason for that, if you don't know anything about reality, the reason for that is because true riches, unfathomable riches, it's called in Ephesians 3.8, are found in Jesus Christ alone. But what happens, and I think we can be guilty of this, and certainly the false teachers in Ephesus were guilty of this. They were thinking, man, why can't we have Both. We can have the godliness thing, and we can make money off of it. Or maybe for you, you're like, I can do the whole make tons of money and do with it whatever I want kind of thing, and be a Christian at the same time. And yet, here's the problem that Jesus addressed in the Gospels. You can't serve two masters. If money is your goal to being rich, you will find that that pathway does not lead you to somewhere you want to go. And if you think that doing the God thing in order to get you there is the blending of the two of them, you misunderstand Jesus' words. You cannot serve God and money. You're either gonna love the one and hate the other or you're gonna be devoted to the one and you're gonna despise the other. This is what the false teachers were missing in Ephesus. But before Paul turns that page and goes, listen, godliness as a means to gain is not the path you wanna to go to, why? Because gain is ultimate there. However, before you toss all of the baby out with the bathwater, let me hold on to godliness for a second, Paul's saying. In other words, don't throw that out. Because what he wants to get to today, which is the extension of what he was saying last week, is this, and it's our big idea for this morning, godliness is great gain. Not the way they were using it, as a means to money as the ultimate end, but godliness itself, godliness being the fruit of obedience to Jesus Christ, That kind of godliness is indeed great gain, and Paul spends five verses wanting to address this so we don't go over this and go, oh, well, godliness, I guess, isn't the path to true gain. No, 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 it is, just not the way they were doing it. No, it is. The way to truly be rich is to be godly, but not for the reasons that the false teachers thought And so Paul lays down these five reasons why actual godliness is the way to be truly rich. If you're looking to be rich, do not be deceived. Godliness is your way to be truly rich for these five reasons. Here's the first one. Number one, because it comes with contentment. Praise be to God. Christians are the only ones that can learn true contentment because they know where their treasure is. Look at verse six. But godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, godliness is great gain precisely because it comes with contentment. If you are godly, you get contentment thrown in. It's the benefit to you such that true riches are no longer defined the way the world defines it, which is by what you have. No, when you have godliness, you have contentment, which shows you that true riches are not ultimately related to what you have, but related to whether you're content with what you have. Benjamin Franklin, noting this issue, said this, quote, money never made a man happy, Not yet, nor will it. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more a man has, listen to this, the more he wants. Instead of filling a vacuum, it creates one. This is the problem with riches in the pursuit of money as the end to being rich. You think it's going to satisfy you, and it creates more holes than you had to begin with. That's why it drives people mad. That's why the pursuit of riches in money has made many, many people realize and understand the elusiveness of that pursuit. And you could quote all kinds of billionaires and all kinds of people that have made tons of money, but perhaps one of the most famous statements, and I'm sure you've even heard it in a sermon before, is the words of John D. Rockefeller. Sensing the elusive pursuit of riches and money was asked, how much is enough? And do you remember what he said? Just a little bit more. Guys, the, ch- the person who is rich is the person who doesn't need anything else. Thus, you are rich when you are Content. This word contentment here, it's an interesting word. It was a favorite virtue of the cynics and the Stoics of Paul's day. And the idea of contentment in the culture was this idea of self-mastery. You are unflappable by the circumstances and whatever hits you. So come what may, you are going to remain unaffected by your circumstances. And that was seen as a tremendous benefit. In the book of Philippians, Paul hijacks the phrase or the term contentment, and he talks about the secret to genuine contentment, and he says, you know that word contentment, and how they use it is this word that means self-mastery or self-sufficiency? I'm hijacking that word and saying, I like the idea in the sense of we ought to be content, but it's not based on self-mastery or self-sufficiency, it's based on Christ's sufficiency, And if you truly wanna be unflappable by the world circumstances, unflappable by what comes your way, what happens in your life, providentially speaking, the way to be independent of the world is to be dependent on God. In particular, to be dependent on Jesus Christ. And see, that's the joy of godliness. See, when godliness gets a hold of your heart, and godliness is the fruit of the gospel, right? When the gospel gets a hold of your heart, when you know the love of God for you in Christ Jesus that sets you free from your sins, you love God as you ought to love God. And you, when you love something and you behold something in all of its greatness, you become like what you behold. The gospel leads us to becoming like God, thus godliness. And godliness leads us to depend on and be content or satisfied with what God gives us because the Christian knows something that the world ultimately doesn't. We know that money can't buy us love, but sometimes we forget and maybe even deny. It's because money can't ultimately satisfy the soul. Only God can. Why Jesus said, "Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing?" Because only Jesus satisfies the soul. So, so here's an interesting thing. You want to be truly rich? I know we're like, uh, it's crypto. We got to get crypto. You all have crypto, right? Shame. No, it's real estate. Let's just be a little bit safer, all right? We don't even know where crypto's going. Let's get into real estate. Let's get into the stock market. Okay, let's go into Forex. And listen, there's a lot of good strategies, and hopefully you guys are doing some asset diversification and working on some sort of a retirement plan, not so you can retire like the typical American and do absolutely nothing, but so you can retire, so you can spend your time and attention and energy on the mission of Jesus Christ, right? Right? That's why you would use that. But here's another thing to add to your like, um, investment strategy. How about investing in your godliness for this year? How about investing in your understanding of the gospel that would lead to a godliness that would bring contentment with it? Honestly, that's a lot less risky and a lot more sure. And then, yeah, have some wise dealings with your money, but don't make that ultimate. Make your godliness ultimate that will ultimately make you rich in the end because true, actual godliness makes you rich because it comes with contentment. You need nothing else, but it's not just that. Godliness is gain. Actual godliness is the way to be truly rich because, number two, it transcends the temporal. It transcends the temporal. Paul's already explained this. He's already talked about the gain that godliness is. When in chapter four, verse eight, he said, what's the value of godliness? Godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and what? The life to come. Godliness makes you rich precisely because it grants you a proper perspective on life. And what is that perspective? That perspective is that money or material things are temporal, and both entry and exit out of this life prove that out. And so he says it like this, verse 7. But godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. The word that stands out when you look at this in the original is nothing. For we brought nothing into the world. Nothing is the focus. We came in with nothing in our pockets. We didn't even come in with pockets Right, If God made us like kangaroos, maybe we could have some sort of a conversation about, you know what, I don't know, weren't we supposed to put something in here? But he didn't make us like that. We don't have any place to put money, and that was intentional by the Lord. You don't come in with anything, and you don't leave with anything. This is true in all of Scripture. Job 121, Ecclesiastes 5.15. I'll read you Ecclesiastes 5.15. This says, he... That as man came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came. And he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. You came in with nothing and you're gonna go out nude. It's a little bit funnier when you say it, but that's what it's saying, okay? The way we come into the world and the way we go acts as both a message and a warning. You wanna hear the message? The message is material things are not necessary for life or you would have come out the shoot with a 401k and a checking account. I wanna make sure you heard that, okay. If it was necessary, if money, if material things were necessary, you would have come out of the gates with a checking account and a 401k. You don't need that to be content, to be truly living. Luke 12, 15 rearticulates this. The parable of the rich fool, I'll put it into Jesus' own parable here, quote, take care And be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life, your life, does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I know it's hard because you went to college with four or five other people and they're all making way more money than you're making. Right? And there's this desire to be like, man, I I, I was smarter than them in school. This is not justice, God. This is crazy, and you can get so covetous, and you have to understand, God's calling the shots on how life works. And he's saying, listen, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, so don't pursue it believing you're gonna find it there. That's the message. What's the warning? The warning is, you go out, and it's not gonna avail you in the life to come either. So you spend your whole life accumulating all this stuff. And you know what? It's going to stay right here. You go, okay, well, so I'll pass it on to my grandkids. Well, first of all, praise God for that. You pass it on to your family. That's great. And there's good intention in that. But most people, they just want more to have more so they can trust in their stuff to deliver them when things go down in life. And in the same parable I just quoted, Jesus calls them a fool. For it happened to be that that night, the man's life was demanded of him. What you're not going to be able to do when you die, because when you're going to die, you're going to die. Okay, you're going to die. I get to be the bearer of truth. Guaranteed, you're going to die. And you're going to stand before God and give an account for your life. And if you're like, I made a ton of money. It's going to literally do nothing for you. Proverbs 11, verse 4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. If you could come out loaded with money and it will do nothing for you in the end, it'll stay here. You won't be able to use it as a defense before a holy God. Well, this is what I use my money for, or my, my time for. I made just a killing. And I gave a good life to the few people around me. You, you don't need riches when you stand before God, you need righteousness. Guess what the gospel provides for you? An imputed righteousness. Godliness is the fruit of righteousness that you receive by a sheer gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That by faith in Jesus, the one who lived that perfect life, God credits your account by faith. With Jesus' righteousness, such as when God looks at you, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. When he says godliness is great gain, what he's saying is godliness is the fruit of gospel work. And the gospel work credits each individual believer with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, such that when you stand before God and give an account for your life, you would never, ever want to start nickeling and diming your own record you will fall woefully short. What you wanna say is by faith in Jesus, through the gift of your grace, I have been credited the full righteousness of Jesus and my plea is not my own efforts and work, my plea is the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's my plea. And that's huge. And you're not gonna get that pursuing riches, you're gonna get that pursuing godliness. That's another tremendous blessing Patrick Henry, one of America's founding fathers, at the close of his life said something very interesting. He was kind of taking an account of everything that he had going on, and he said this, I have now uh, disposed of all my property to my family, and there is one thing more I wish I could give them, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. Like, I almost wonder... You know that, those times in life where you're just sitting down and you're just reflecting and something hits you so deeply? For me, it happens like on rides home in a car where you're just staring out the window. Anyone else? Do you get really good thoughts, really deep thoughts on rides home? No? Okay, cool. Um, uh, I do. And I just wonder what, I mean, he, he wasn't driving in a car, you know, I mean, I don't know much about history, but I I know he wasn't in a car. What was he in? One of those like rockers, you know? Because I think you can get something good in a rocking chair too. You know what I'm saying? Like you just get time and these like deep thoughts just smack you, right? And he just says, there's one thing more I wish I could give them and that is faith in Jesus Christ. If they had that and I hadn't given them a single shilling, they would have been rich. Right now, right now, right now. Commit to that for your family. They don't need your wealth. They need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Listen, riches are a good thing, and there is principle to passing that on, but it's not as important as righteousness. Don't spend your time trying to give them a good thing when you could have given them the better thing. Who are you investing in? You go, man, I got all my kids out of the house. Yeah, but you're probably a grandparent. Get on it. Make sure before you die, your kids and your grandkids know about the righteousness that alone comes from Jesus Christ by faith. Live that. He goes on, if they had that and I hadn't given them a single shilling, they would have been rich. And if they had not that and I had given them all the world, they would have been poor indeed. That's the mentality you need. Do you have that mentality? Do you believe that? Because what happens a lot of times is we say we believe it and then we look at what someone else has and we're like, that's what I want. And the heart is so drawn towards those things. If you wanna be truly rich, you need to pursue godliness, which is the fruit of the work of the gospel in someone's heart, which allows you to see beyond the here and now to the then and there of eternity. You don't set your eyes here, you set your eyes there. And given the fact that you're gonna leave empty-handed just like you came into the world, here's the third reason godliness is great gain, because it simplifies the expectations. You're like, okay, I get it. I don't need a lot of stuff, I get it. But we need some stuff. You gonna talk about that or what? We're just gonna be so like in the air. You're totally heavenly minded. You're no earthly good. Um, we're gonna talk about that, you know? Because I, I work hard. I give my family good stuff. Praise God. The question is not whether or not you do that. You're supposed to. The question is where's the bar? Right? Where's the bar? How many of us live in this constant state of being discontent? Where is the bar when we can know, hey, anything beyond this, and that's just straight up extra? Okay? We're going to talk about that. Let's look at it. Verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, uh uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. This has got to be one of those manuscripts where it left out some of it. It can't be just that. Come on. Somebody's with me on that. This manuscript's jacked. Anyone? Anyone? Food and clothing? Is he kidding me? You know where we live? Hang on. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. The actual words are sustenance and coverings. Those are the words. Coverings. So clothing is included, yes, but it can also uh, infer like covering, like a roof over your head. So he sang sustenance to live and food and water. He sang clothes, okay? He sang covering roof over your head. I feel like that's the beginning of a country song, isn't it? You got all you need. Somebody's writing that song. No, it's already been written. Just different versions. Any more than that and you have more than what you need. So here's what we're gonna do. I want you to take a second right now and I want you to say thank you God under your breath right now. Because I don't think there's a soul in here that has less than that. I think everyone's in the thank God category. You have been blessed abundantly more. I have been blessed abundantly more than what the contentment level is. Did you do it? Did you thank God? Okay, now do this preach to yourself these words, we will be content with these. Not literally out loud right now, but that's the job. That is your job. When he says, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content, it's a Hebraism, which is, has this kind of, it's a, a term that has the force of an imperative, So it's to remind the reader, every time you look at it again, hold right there, everything else out of the picture, with this, Lord, I will be content. You got to preach that to yourself, especially here. So get on that horse right now. Because listen, you go, but I want some more of that. And I'm saying that wanting, we're going to get there in a second, is a dangerous wanting. It is a dangerous pathway that's potential. So we got to preach to our hearts right now. With this, we will be content. Right here, this stuff, sustenance and coverings. Why? Because lifestyle expectations creep up so fast and steal your joy and gratitude before you even know it hit you. Right, we know this, money complicates things, right? Henry Ford, after he'd made tons, millions and millions of dollars, said he was happier when he was a mechanic. More money complicates things, right? In the word of the great 90s theologian, notorious (laughs) B.I.G. Mo, which is the shorthand for more, mo money, mo problems. And that is true and has been true. And little did you know, you were just listening to that, you know, you snuck that Parental Advisory CD, right? And you were listening to that, your parents didn't even know, you were getting a little bit of truth in the midst of a whole bunch of garbage. <laughs> mo' money, mo' problems, how? Well, if you have more money, it adds stress and it distorts your reality. It does both. What do I mean by it adds stress? Well, you have more to lose now. You didn't know what it was like to have, have a lot. Now you have a lot, and the expectation is you'll always have a lot, and so when you lose a lot, it hurts a lot more. It's added stress. It's more to use. It's not just more to lose. It's more to use. You have a responsibility. Here's what the person that just has the covering over their head, the covering on themselves and food, you know what they do? They don't make a lot of decisions in life with their money. They know where it's going. You're like, I don't know what to do. I mean, we were going to give to that thing, but that doesn't, we can't do that vacation now that we've crafted into our budget and give that same amount that we had the noble intentions to do when we didn't have any money. We thought if we were ever to make it, we'd give a ton over here, but now it just, how, we, how do we get this vacation and Come and that? Come on, 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 come on. <sighs> I think it's there somewhere. I don't know where it is. You don't have to raise your hand, but I think it's there. It's more to be responsible for. It's why it adds stress. But this is the other thing it does. It distorts reality. You know why? Because very, very quickly, wants are quickly piled up into needs. And before you know it, you're talking in your small group as just getting by. Just getting by. You're confused. Christ wants to set you free today. Or you're thinking, man, I, I, just, I really want to give, but things are super tight right now. Can I encourage you to go back and look at your budget? Because I think what happens is things are super tight because as you make more, you spend more. <laughs> and so you look and you're like, it happened again. I got, a, I got a raise and the same amount. I spent more than I took in. This This is... How this works, this is an incredibly enslaving idol potential. You might even start praying, despite all you have, I'm praying that God would provide, when maybe it's that you just have simply had your reality distorted and God has given you more than enough for what you need. So how do you stay content? I mean, I'm a little bit nervous. How do you do that? How do you do that? How do you do that? Here's a couple things. Just you can jot them down. Number one, live in the pocket. Live in the pocket. What do I mean? Proverbs 38 and 9. Lord, please don't give me so much to where I'm full and deny you. And at the same time, Lord, so little that I would steal and profane your name. Let me live in the pocket of taking and blessing and enjoying God's good things. What's going to be cool is, for those of you who are like, hey, where's the message on when God gives me more, I can enjoy it? It's coming in 1 Timothy 6, okay? God is a good God. He's a gracious God. He gives abundantly, and it's not bad that you have abundance to end nor to enjoy some of that abundance, okay? So take a deep breath. That's just not for today. You're like, when is he going to get to that? On a different week. You're going to have to come back if it's your first, okay? I want, I want the one about enjoying my stuff. That's coming, God wants you to be truly rich though and it starts with contentment which grows in the soil of godliness which comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ and faith in him. How about this? Remind me it's all yours, Lord. And if it's all his, it's all his by the way. Is that something I have to prove? I need, I need to just not prove it. I need to tell you it, and then you need to see it all over the scriptures. It's God's money. You have been entrusted with a large sum of God's money. The question is, how do, how, not how do I use it? How does God want me to use it? Then maybe this too. God, remind me that my money is a good gift, but a bad God. You go, how do I know if it's a God? Well, it's pretty straightforward. Do you control your money in a God-honoring way, or does your money control you? Here's a good gauge for it. Not just being generous, but being sacrificially generous. What, is, what are you doing with your money that is keeping you from doing something else because you've decided to pay it forward into the kingdom work of the gospel? that you've looked after eternal treasure and eternal good and you're going I'm going to give up x so I can sacrificially contribute to this w- where is that in your life not just being generous see generous is a generosity is a good thing and it's a gospel thing but really true gospel generosity is sacrificial generosity in our context you could give without it ever being sacrificial and it could seem generous and it's also before you know it what happens with rich people is that it just becomes generosity becomes another form of currency So you were generous, but you got someone, some relational piece, some bond, some something there that you benefit from in the end. All those things can help, but here's the ultimate truth. Godliness helps you dial your expectations in appropriately. Anything more than sustenance and coverings is extra. Now, Paul pivots from perspective on how to be rich through godliness, which leads to contentment, into the perils of the other pursuit. So let's just talk about the other side of this, because we're saying, hey, you want to be rich? You got to go after the gospel. Trust in Jesus Christ by faith. Turn from your sins. He'll forgive you of your sins. Cancel the power of enslavement to sin so you can walk in newness of life and with that godliness becoming like the one you behold in all of his glory God himself through the pages of scripture man you're gonna have this contentment that's pouring out of you but if that's not enough let's look at it from the other side and just go you know what suppose you didn't want to listen today suppose you're like I've heard this before but it ain't that bad All right, let's just talk about the perils of the other side that's where Paul goes here so the fourth Reason that true godliness is the way to be truly rich is because number four, true godliness directs the desires. True godliness directs the desires. The Greek philosopher Epicurus said the secret of contentment is not to add to a man's possessions, but to take away from his desires, I would say he's onto something there. But I would say that if we're honest with ourselves and what the Bible does, which is great, is it'll lay down like, hey, that's a bad desire. But it won't say desire is bad in general. Rather, what I think the gospel does is it takes all that God-given desire and passion in us and it puts it on the right things. Godliness redirects our desires, You're going to see another kind of desire in verse 9, though. Look at verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall. And there's this progression that takes place. Fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You see the movement there? Temptation, snare, bad desires, plunged into ruin. It's interesting, one desire, the desire of money, or to be rich, plunges you, if you give into it, into all kinds of different desires. We're going to talk about some of those. He's trying to get our attention. This is a pretty nasty thing. It starts with a temptation. It always starts with a temptation, doesn't it? Now how it started in the garden? It's always a temptation. Oh, we're strong enough. You're not strong enough. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is indeed weak. God help us. The temptation is very much there. And it's interesting because Paul, in the Greek, is he's kind of playing on words. The word temptation is parasmos in Greek, and the word gain is parismos in Greek. So he's saying parismos has a parasmos. Or maybe what we would say in English, if that doesn't make any sense to you, is to say the only gain you get from... Pursuing this is pain, the pain of temptation. He's kind of playing on words like that. He's trying to get, a, you want gain? You'll get gain that way, but it's a kind of gain. It's the gain of pain. You want it? The gain of the pain of temptation, because the enemy knows, and I'm, I'm convinced that money is one of the strongest tools of the enemy to lure us into temptation. And it is such a nasty pit of so many dangerous potential desires that if you give into the temptation, you will see sinfulness flowing out of your heart in all kinds of different ways. Some that are more subtle that just exist within you and some that play out in people's lives that we do like Netflix documentaries about. If you give in because you desire so badly to be rich that you give in to the temptation and Satan will lay them aplenty around you. He will let your self-justifying lawyer in your head tell you why what you're doing is okay and you'll explain yourself out of what's godly. And he will catch you in that temptation and the minute you give in to the temptation, you are caught in a snare. You know what a snare is? It's like a trap. You're like that's okay I'll get myself out. No, you don't get yourself out on your own of this trap. This is a gnarly trap. Left to yourself, you're in trouble. The same language of snare is used in other parts of the pastoral epistles. We saw it in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 7. He must be well thought of by outsiders, speaking of the qualifications of an elder so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The snare is, you give into the temptation, you're in the snare. The snare is your enslavement. What are you enslaved to? You're enslaved to all of these senseless and harmful desires, literally desires that will injure you. They're foolish, but you can't shake them now. You think you're controlling them, but it's the equivalent of picking your own handcuffs, y'all. You are not in control when you let the desire to be rich flood your heart. And it will plunge you into ruin and destruction, which is interesting because these are like almost two identical words. If you put them together, some people think it's just meaning utter destruction. You go this route and it'll lead to utter destruction. Some think it's like spreading out the two. You're going to see ruin in this life and destruction eternally. That's how bad this is. It will end in nothing materially and will end in nothing spiritually or eternally. And the bottom line is, Paul is warning us about this because Jesus warned us about this because Jesus was the one who said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? That, friends, is not rich. That is a deadly illusion when you think it's the opposite. It's pretty straightforward. So you think so? Money's bad. I get it. Fine, fine, fine. I just every time I see money, I'll just—it's like a hot potato. I'll just get it, get it out, get it out like that. And, and that's where we can creep into kind of the other side, right? There's the prosperity side, but then there's also, there's also the poverty side, where you're just like, it's bad, it's bad. M- money is not bad. Okay. Money's kind of like a gun. You know, if you leave a gun on a table, I I used to think that it might, but it won't shoot. (laughs) Okay. I didn't grow up with guns. And so it was like, I'm, I'm even nervous to be around when it's pointed at me. Like, well, no one's holding it. It's okay. And use for a good purpose. It can defend like people you love and use for a bad purpose. It can go really, really, really bad. That's how money is. Like, I sit a stack. Like, instead of coming up for communion today, if I just had hundreds and you're like, hey, each take $100, you'd be like, get out of here! You know, I could see all of you just charging for maybe not $100, you know? You're like, come on, we're classy, make it 1000 right? <laughs> whatever it was, whatever it is, we would come charging up, you know? And money sitting on the table is not bad. Money even in your pocket is not bad, It's what money does to you. It's what money reveals about you. It's what the heart has opportunity to do now that money is in your possession. That is the problem. As he says here, it's not money that is the issue, but verse 10 will say it's the love of money that is the issue. And loved ones, to talk about it as the love of money is to talk about money as idolatry, When he's saying the love of money, and we're gonna get there, is a root of all kinds of evils, he's saying because the love of money is an exchange of the one true God for money as your God. And being enslaved to it as you would be, it would plunge you into all kinds of harmful, ruinous desires. So he finishes like this, godliness is true gain because it helps you, number five, sidestep self-inflicted pain, okay? It helps you sidestep self-inflicted pain. And you can't put a price tag on that, right? We don't like getting hurt. Look at our lifestyle. It's so comfortable and it's nice, isn't it? I bet, I bet, I bet this is, this is not a good example. I was going to start talking about if I were torturing you. That's not a good one. That's not a good one. Come on on another illustration. Let's go with we would pay a lot to get out of a torturous situation. Could you imagine a situation where you are the reason the pain is coming? Your love has led you into a self-skewing of sorts. Godliness helps you sidestep that and that you can't put a price tag on. For verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Anyone heard that before? (laughs) You got it on a mug? That's (laughs) mug worthy, isn't it? That's classic that's an awkward one, right? As you, you pull out your like, um, you know, really quality coffee, you spin that mug around, just read it from the other side where it says nothing on it. The, the interesting thing is that in the King James Version, it says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Have you seen that? All of it but I think it's actually better to translate it. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And the way I would see that is because it's following in the line of verse nine. The desire to be rich plunges you into many harmful and senseless desires for the love of money is a root of all kinds of or many desires, right? He's not trying to be specific or exclusive to saying the love of money is the root of all evil, No, what I think he's saying instead is money is a root from which grows a lot of nasty, devastating fruit. Just think about it for a second. Just think about this reality. It is hard to think of a category of evil that couldn't be the result of loving money. You ready? People lie all the time to get their hands on money. People will cheat to get money. Some of you have probably lied and cheated to get money. I can think of the first sin that I remember in my head I stole from a grocery store. First time, I'm sure I sinned before that. Didn't have categories, but I remember that. People will steal to get money. Uh, How about this one in our area? People will commit adultery to get money. True, not true? You don't have to answer. People will kill to get money. People will harm to get money. People will teach false things to get money. People will take bribes to get money. People will distort justice to get money. People will manipulate to get money. People will take advantage of someone else to get money. Can you really think of a category where the love of money hasn't driven someone to all kinds of evil? And we know why, right? Because of the idolatry underneath. Because if you're choosing to love money, your loving of money is precisely the same as not loving God. And when you don't love God, you're definitely not gonna love people the way you ought, and so therefore you find yourself in this predicament. So for the sake of our souls, what we probably need to finish is how do I know that I love money? How do I know if I do? Is that me? How how do I know? Well, the first thing we don't need in small group is just being really quick to judge, right? You pull in now and you're like spotting everyone's car as you come in. You're like, well... I know who to be praying for in small group today. Uh, the devil has them for sure, right? And so you like bring your golf cart over instead. It took you two and a half hours to get there, but you're like, now no one knows. Except they know now you have a golf cart. So that doesn't work either. <laughs> oh yeah, where do you use that? Not at the membership you don't have. So we gotta be really, really careful, really, really careful. Probably better just to work on your own heart not worry about other people's hearts, okay? This money thing is the whole plank in the speck, big, 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 big time. Don't worry about anyone else, worry about you, okay? And what I would say is some have a lot and don't love it. That needs to be said, I hope everyone hears that. And some have little and love it. It's not about how much you have, it's not about how much you have. Here's some questions you might wanna consider asking yourselves, even continuing on in a small group this week. How do I know if I love money? Five questions. Are you willing to sin to get it? Number one. Number two, are you constantly pining after it? It's the idea of it never being enough. You're just never content. God has given you so much, and you're constantly like, oh, I feel like kids are a good example. Have you ever seen that, right? After like a birthday party or, or Christmas, and you have to teach them that. They're like, oh, I put 30 things on the list. I got 12. You're like, you got 12. You. Sweetheart, you got 12, right? It's one of those. It's one of those. Third Question. Does your well-being ebb and flow with it? If it does, who knows what Biden's going to do by the time his presidency is over, right? Anyone else more strapped for cash? It's one of those things where even if you weren't into politics and you kept your head in the sand, all you have to do is drive to the gas station. I'm just saying, you probably should figure this out really practically soon. Number four, do you pride yourself in it? That's where it's like, you, you, it kind of gives you extra confidence. You walk into a place and you kind of look, well, the saying goes, like a million bucks. It, it's sort of part of your identity. It's wrapped up in why you can speak so on your feet and everyone's kind of impressed by your confidence, but really you just trust in money to give you a sense of identity. And number five, are you stingy with it? Are you stingy with it? We gotta take this to heart. The consequences of this craving are severe. He ends in this way. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. He's not saying someone was a true Christian and then wandered away to not become a Christian anymore. We've preached those messages. If you wander away, you never were one to begin with. Oh, but they follow Christ for 30 years. Okay. A lot of people do a lot of religious things for a long time. It's, it's like Judas. He followed Jesus for a long time. Money got a hold of his heart and he went for silver instead of the Savior. Remember that? He had dug up the treasure in a field that you would sell everything else just to get a hold of, he had dug it up. He had dug it up, it it was Jesus. He had Jesus, but you know what? When he had an opportunity for money, he took the shovel and he buried the treasure back over again. And he wandered away and every step of wandering away from Jesus. You know what a spit is? It's, It's what you would impale an animal on when you would want to rotisserie that thing over like a fire. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's the language he's using when he's saying you're piercing yourself with many pangs. You are walking into a spit with every step you take away from Jesus Christ to wander off after riches. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, what did it look like in Judas' life, right? He ended up committing suicide over what he had done. But there's disillusionment built in because the love of money will not satisfy you. There's grief because of your guilt and what you've exchanged in order to go after something else. There's dissatisfaction and unfulfillment because, oh my goodness, hello, it doesn't satisfy. How to be rich? Jesus Christ is the one in whom true riches are found. And so I'm gonna leave you with this. Hebrews 13, 5 says this, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's Hebrews 13, verse 5. We're going to come to the table now. And uh, when we do, one of the things that we're reminded about as we come to the table is that the enslavement to sin we were in has been severed through the blood of Jesus, through the working of Jesus on our behalf, such that if you are a Christian, no matter how strong sinful impulses feel, they no longer are dominant over your life. They may feel that way, but Christ is saying, no, 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 you have been ransomed and transferred out of the kingdom of darkness with its tyranny to sin, and you have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. So this meal that we take is a meal reminding us of our freedom. You have been set free, brothers and sisters. You have been set free to true contentment. You have been set free to true godliness. You have been set free to true joy and you will not find it in the world you'll find it in the work of Jesus Christ so this meal is for the believer but the meal is also an intrigue for the unbeliever the unbeliever doesn't come to the table the unbeliever hears the message that is being declared to you right now and the message that is in the actual taking of the bread and the cup and they let it sink in and that's the work of the Holy Spirit to let it sink in, to penetrate your heart, to realize every other avenue you can go is a dead end to ruin and destruction except for the Lord Jesus Christ and you respond in faith to Jesus. Trust in him. Believe in him. The, the, The meal is a proclamation of the truth that you need to believe. And so we'll model it as we come to the table. There's no one special coming up to these table except sinners saved by grace that know they've been forgiven. And where the dominion of sin no longer conquers us, we have been set free. So let's be reminded of that as we come to the table. I'm gonna encourage you to come now and grab the elements and we will take it together in just a few minutes.